0: Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. Yes, we are going to start Mark today. Yes, it is short. No, I have no idea how long it will take us to get through it. Obviously, you're in here and not in the worship service. But if you were in the worship service this morning, right now, you would see this huge box over the stage. It's 20 feet by 6 feet by 6 feet. Teresa sewed that. (laughs) It's a screen. (laughs) And they're projecting the words of the songs up on this big box that Teresa sewed. She sewed it here at the church so that she could spread the thing out. So, anyway, it's kind of cute. We're going to do an overview today. Do we have enough of these? And to do an overview, we're going to start at the very beginning. To put the book of Mark into context of the whole Bible. To do that, somewhere I have this, we're going to go through the entire Bible in about 15 minutes. So you know how all of this fits together. You have a bookmark that I just gave you that has the books of the Bible. You can stick it in the book of Mark, and you'll know where we are every week. Ah, that's so clever. Oftentimes we forget, what? It won't fit on your phone, no. You have to cram it in real hard in that little slot at the bottom. Oftentimes we forget that the Bible is really 66 different books composed by a variety of different authors over a thousand-year period And God has directed all of this to accomplish His purpose, which is to to describe how we as human beings can be made right with God. We have to understand that that is the purpose of the Bible. Because you see, when we get to the book of Mark, and we read the first sentence, which says, "...the beginning of the gospel..." of jesus christ we need to understand that it's not the beginning of the definitive history book you and i have hundreds thousands of things that we would like to know about jesus that aren't in the book of mark but it's not a definitive history of everything that he ever did rather it is the gospel what we need in order to be made right with god so Starting in the book of Genesis, the first five books are usually referred to as the books of the law, the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses. By tradition, Moses is the author of the first five books. In fact, Jesus says Moses wrote the first five books, which is a little bit interesting because he does die in the the fifth book, but it's quite common that somebody would fill in the last chapter because there was probably a scribe that was actually doing the physical handwriting. The first book is Genesis. Genesis is one of the pivotal books of the Bible, because it describes the creation of the world, the fall of mankind, the flood, the Tower of Babel where the nations are spread, and we begin to see God drawing his people back to him, which is... What did I just say? The purpose and meaning of the Bible. So he calls this guy by the name of Abraham and he says, Come on, come to a place, and I'm not going to tell you where it is until you get there. This is a tremendous act of faith on his part. I mean, I go on trips, but I like to know where I'm going before I leave. I like to have a map, I like to have the GPS coordinates. I like to find it on my phone. I like a tour guide. I like to know. And God told Moses, I mean uh, Abraham, go and Abraham went. So Abraham had two sons. Their names were Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is the son of the handmaiden Not the son of the promise. Isaac is the son of the promise. So Isaac has two sons. They are Jacob and Esau. And in the book of Romans, we have this very strange passage where God says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau not so much. That's a very loose translation. Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter that we know of. What's the name of the daughter? Huh? Dinah is the daughter. The 12 sons are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. Sort of. Okay? It actually gets a little interesting because Jacob adopts Joseph's two sons, So Joseph is replaced by two, but when they get to the promised land, Levi, who is the priest, the Levites, they don't get a part of the land. So there's 12 divisions, two sons of Joseph and not Levi, okay? So the book of Genesis ends with Joseph in Egypt, and he brings Jacob and all of his siblings down to Egypt. And that's the end of the book of Genesis. Exodus begins with this odd sentence that says, There arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And all of a sudden we have these Israelites breeding like rabbits, and the Egyptians become concerned that the Israelites are going to take over, so they enslave them. They start using them to build their magnificent structures. And the people start complaining. And God says, it's time for them to leave. Now, you have to remember, they've been there for hundreds of years. Why have they been there? That's always an interesting discussion. God told Jacob to go to Egypt because I am going to allow the people of the land to get so wicked that when you come back, you'll have to wipe them out because they will be so wicked. So God calls Moses to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. So we have the plagues. We have all of that going on. And in the book of Exodus, we have the giving of the law. Moses goes up on the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments. God also gives him other laws and instructions, and he gives him very detailed instructions about how the tabernacle is to be put together. So, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is where Bible reading programs for the year go to die. Several, several years ago, I taught a series on the history of Israel. What I really wanted to do was Exodus and Joshua. That's what I really wanted to do, okay? And I remember somebody telling me, oh, I'm looking forward to Leviticus because I want a detailed study of all the sacrifices. And I said, you're going to be disappointed (laughs) because I think I did it in three lessons. Leviticus is the description of the sacrificial system. You do this, here's the sacrifice. This time of the year, you sacrifice this. This time of the year, you do that. If you commit this sin, you do this. If you do that, if you can't afford that, then you do this, etc., etc., etc. Why is that important? Why is it even in the Bible? Because it's a picture of what Jesus Christ is going to accomplish for us if we don't understand the necessity of sacrifice we will not understand why jesus had to come or we will begin to think as many people do today that jesus was just one more good teacher coming to show us how we ought to live our lives that's the book of leviticus that is followed by numbers What a strange name for a book. Numbers has the census where they finally count all of the people to get ready to go into the promised land. It also has more discussion of them wandering around lost and not doing what God wants them to do, etc., etc. Deuteronomy is Moses' final instructions to the nation of Israel. I actually like the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Basically, it boils down to this, because God gets the people to divide into two, and one group sits on this mountain and says all the blessings of God, and one person sits, I mean, one group sits on this and has all the curses. If you follow God, your crops will be great, your families will be great, you'll do great. And if you don't follow God, you're going to be in deep trouble. And that is... Moses' message from God to the people. What is interesting, Moses ends up by saying, don't think that God chose you because you're the best people on the planet. Don't think he chose you because you're the most numerous. Don't think he chose you because you're the best looking. I may have added that one. In fact, you are a stubborn, obnoxious person, and God chose you because He had made a promise to Abraham. Why is that important? Because what we're going to see in the New Testament, in the book of Mark, is God is going to reach out to all the nations of the world. The book of Mark is written by John Mark, probably while he was in Rome, probably addressed to Roman citizens. They're not Jews. They're just not. Why? Because God's promise to Abraham is going to be made available to all of us. That's why you and I can become believers. So, that finished off the first five. Then we reach a group of books known as The History. These are just common titles that people assign to different groups it begins with joshua joshua leads the people into the nation uh, into the promised land you know march around jericho the walls come tumbling down the land is divided and at the end of it joshua is concerned that the people are going to go following after the gods of the land that they're in and he tells them choose this day whom you will serve Whether the gods of the land you're in now, whether the gods of Egypt that you knew, but as for me and my house, we will serve God. And that's the end of Joshua. Uh, That brings us to Judges. Judges is a pretty dismal book. Because you see, we think of Israel as being a united thing. Well, it actually isn't. They entered the promised land, the the 11 tribes, 12 tribes, broke up into their different groups and they didn't have much to do with each other. And outsiders kept attacking them because the people refused to do what God asked them to do. Namely, they went chasing after the gods of the land in which they were now living, So God would allow outsiders to come in and oppress them. And the people would moan and cry to God, and God would send a judge to free them from their bondage. If you look at the book of Judges, it is this cycle. Apostasy, they fall away, they scream and they shout, God sends a judge, they repent, they come back, and this cycle starts all over again. Now, reading it, you think this is happening on a weekly basis. In reality, this cycle is taking about 30 or 40 years. But that's the cycle. So we have Samson, we have Gideon, we have Deborah, we have all of these people who come to bring the truth to God's people. That's the book of Judges. Which brings us to Ruth, which is just a little story thrown in there about some a family that leaves and comes back. You know the story. Ruth and Naomi. It's quoted at weddings all the time. You know, your people will be my people, and et cetera, et cetera. Which is kind of interesting because it's not really a discussion between a bride and a groom. It's really a discussion between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Go figure. Then we have First and Second Samuel, whose primary character is, the title says it, right, Samuel. Samuel is a priest. Samuel could be called the last judge, if you wanted to call him that. But basically, he is in charge of presenting God to the people. And the people get ticked off, and they said, we want a king. And Samuel knows that by saying they want a king, they are rejecting God, and he's ticked off. God says, don't worry about it, they're not rejecting you, give them a king. So he goes and anoints this good-looking guy by the name of Saul to be the first king of Israel. And guess what? All the bad things that had been predicted about having a king come true. And Saul loses sight of what he's supposed to be doing. So God says, I'm going to raise up another king who will follow me. And he tells Samuel to go anoint this little kid, punk kid, by the name of David to be the next king. Now you have to understand, Saul is not dead. And here we are anointing somebody else as king. That's a bad thing to do. So we see this long discussion of Saul trying to kill David, David trying to run away from Saul, David having opportunities to kill Saul, but he refuses to do it because Saul is the Lord's anointed. And finally, Saul is killed in battle. Saul, his son Jonathan, David becomes king. Now, you have to understand, once again, remember, 12 tribes kind of spread around doing their own thing. When David becomes king, he's really only king of half of it for a while. Finally, he is able to unify it all together, and he finally has what today we would refer to as a unified Israel. His son is... Come on. Solomon. Solomon is born to Bathsheba. David, being a man after God's own heart, is doing great things, except for the fact he sees the hot-smoking babe on top of the (laughs) house next door, and he brings her in, and you know the rest of that story. David... Solomon becomes the next king, and Solomon is the peak period of the history of Israel. All of the good stuff that you read about occurred during Solomon's reign. They built the temple, they built a palace, they were rich, they were collecting money from all over the world, jewels from here and there, this and that, they were building all of this stuff. And then Solomon dies, and his son becomes king. Now, there's a problem with Solomon. Solomon has a boatload of wives. I tell my high school students that he had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. First off, they have no clue what a concubine is. Then the second question is, if you have hundreds of wives, why do you need hundreds of concubines? But anyway, the book tells us that the wives of Solomon led him astray. Now, you have to understand, he is marrying these people for political alliances. As such, he is bringing in young ladies from all over the known world, And they all have their own gods. They all have their own means of worship. And guess what? They come and they say, honey, would you build me an idol? And he says, sure, go ahead and do it. And pretty soon he starts showing up and he is led astray. So his son, what's his son's name who becomes king? you got to help me here. Is it Rehoboam or Jeroboam? I think it's Jeroboam. Jeroboam his son becomes king and the people come to him and say you know what is it Jeroboam it's Rehoboam good thank you his he the people come and say you know Solomon's been working us to death why don't you be nice to us for a while and Rehoboam goes and talks to his father's advisors and they say you're right Solomon's been working him to death. Be nice to him. And then Rehoboam goes and talks to his buddies, and they say, work them harder. So what we see is a split in the nation of Israel between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And we're not going to see a unified Israel again. The northern kingdom will be known as Israel, the southern kingdom will be known as Judah. The northern kingdom runs amok very quickly. Why? They are very concerned that if the people have to go to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifices at the temple like they're supposed to, they will be come loyal to Judah. So instead they make their own places of worship, their own idols, their own golden calves and the people run amok so we have ahab and jezebel in the northern kingdom so for hundreds of years these two kingdoms are fighting each other or they're fighting some neighbors and eventually eventually the northern kingdom is destroyed by the assyrians The southern kingdom survives a little bit longer and is finally destroyed by the Babylonians. And right there we have the history books. That's the history of Israel. Now, after the southern kingdom had been carried off by the Babylonians, the Persians took over the Babylonians and allowed them to come back. And that's where we get the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. One came to build the wall. One came to build the temple. The last time I taught this lesson, I said the Babylonians let them come back. And somebody after class came up and reminded me it wasn't the Babylonians. It was, in fact, the Persians. Yes, I do make lots of mistakes. You probably don't remember, but I launched in this long discussion, this was years ago, about one of the sons of Saul. And I get into this long discussion, finally somebody says, that's not the right son. And you go, you're right, it's not. Ugh. Anyway, so those are the history books. Now, while that history is going on, God is sending prophets to the people. We're jumping to the major and minor prophets. First off, you have to understand that nobody had a name tag that said, I'm a major prophet, and I'm a minor prophet. The only reason, the only reason they are called major and minor is because of the length of their works and how many you could fit on a scroll. So Isaiah is huge, and you can put all these minor prophets on one scroll if you want to. Okay? That's the only reason. They're all important to God. But during this final period of the nation of Israel and Judah and into captivity, God is sending prophets to the people. So you can look at a timeline of which prophet and when they showed up because some of them are preaching to the northern kingdom, some are preaching to the southern kingdom, some are preaching after they're carried off into captivity, some before they're carried off into captivity. Why is this important? Because what these prophets are going to talk about is the coming Messiah. From Isaiah to Malachi, they're going to talk about this Messiah who is going to come. And we're going to see that in the first four verses of the book of Mark. But skipping back a little bit, We have what are known as the books of poetry, sometimes referred to as the wisdom literature. We have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Uh, Most people remember Song of Solomon because it's about sex. Okay. For some reason in the last 30 years, when you're teaching young married couples about sex, they always want to talk about the book of Solomon. Now, it is interesting because if you go back a hundred years and all the way back, the theologians didn't want to talk about sex, so they always referred to it as an allegory between Christ and His church. Go figure. That's the book of Song of Solomon. Job is probably the oldest actual book in the Bible. It tells about this encounter between God and Satan and kind of this deal of we're going to see if Job will remain faithful. It's a very interesting book. It has this wonderful two or three chapters at the beginning where this whole deal is worked out, and at the end of it it has two or three chapters where it's all resolved. The problem is is there's 50 chapters in the middle that cover a lot of discussion as his friends try to talk him out of this smug feeling that he was a righteous person. So that is Job. Psalms are the songs. Many of them, not all of them, many of them are written by David. They are meant to be sung. They were songs, and they are beautiful poetry. And then obviously Proverbs are the collected sayings. Most, but not all of them, are from Solomon. There are several other people mentioned in there, and they are a collection of wise sayings. I have made the comment before that I think if you are a devout pagan, and if you took the book of Proverbs and used it to help you run your business, it would probably help you be successful. It wouldn't make you a believer, but it might help you. It's all about wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is the beginning of knowledge. fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then... Ecclesiastes is um, Solomon's discussion about the meaninglessness of life. And in one sense, it depresses a lot of people. I happen to like the book of Ecclesiastes. There is actually some discussion about whether he wrote it early in his life and then found out it was all wrong, or he wrote it later in his life when he found out that all of this stuff he had been accumulating didn't bring him happiness. I am firmly in the camp that it was written later in his life. And the conclusion of the book is, (gasps) enjoy life and do what God tells you to do. That's how to have a good life. So, that is the entire Old Testament. Any questions? (laughs) Which brings us to the New Testament. Remember, There is no break in the original Bible because there is no such thing as an Old Testament and a New Testament. We understand this because the Old Testament are the Jewish scriptures. The New Testament are usually written in Greek, and they are the teachings of the church. So in the New Testament, the first four books are called the Gospels. They are the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three of these are referred to as the synoptic gospels because they're very similar to each other. John, on the other hand, is very different. It's more philosophical and interesting. So, who wrote the book of Matthew? Matthew. Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke. Who wrote the book of... We don't have any trouble with this. Today there are people who want to debate the authorship of every one of these books like they do of the Old Testament because if you assume that these books are just written by human beings then you have to figure out how did they come up with this well they stole some material from here they stole something from there how's the best way to write about prophecy Wait until the event happens and then write as if you were writing a hundred years ago. See, I prophesied it would happen. But if you believe that the scripture is given by God to inspired individuals, then the fact that Matthew wrote Matthew and Mark wrote Mark and Luke wrote Luke and John wrote John is not a big deal. So, Mark is usually thought of as the oldest of the three synoptic gospels the oldest of all four of them and in fact most people or a lot of people think that matthew and luke used mark as the starting point of their individual gospel and that could be true Luke acknowledges the fact that he examined sources. Luke is working like a historian. Luke wrote the book of Luke, and then he continued and wrote the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have Acts, which is the history of the early church, and the rest of the New Testament are letters written by various people to various congregations, with the possible exception of Revelation there at the end. It's more prophetic, okay? So Paul would write letters, and we have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, letters addressed to those churches. John wrote letters, and today we have 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, the church where I grew up, some guy one time just for fun replaced the signs on the uh, restrooms to 1 John and 2 John. (laughs) Go figure. The only one that even today we have discussions about who really wrote was the book of Hebrews. There are those who think Paul wrote it. There are those who think Apollos wrote it. We went through the book of Hebrews a year or so ago. So, we covered all of that. So, in the context of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 1, humanity is created in the image of God. And God says it's great. Genesis chapter 3 they ate of the fruit, they disobeyed God, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and they became, we became, fallen creatures. Everything else is God working to bring humanity back to a right relationship with Him. As I mentioned, The sacrificial system is a picture. The faith of Abraham is a demonstration to us the necessity of faith. The prophets were there to tell the people, you know what, you're doing this and it's wrong, you should do this because the Messiah is coming. And that's what we're going to talk about in the book of Mark. So, first off, why are there four Gospels to begin with? Why not just one? Why not just get one right? Well, there's four different Gospels because God has given us four different perspectives on who Jesus was. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. Matthew is going to quote the Old Testament over and over and over again. Mark does it about once in the first chapter. And after that, it's kind of like, I'm going to tell you, because it's addressing it to the Romans. And the Romans don't care about the prophecy. Matthew and Luke begin with huge genealogies. This person beget this person who beget this person. Why? Because to a good Jew, knowing who your ancestors were was very important. The Messiah had to be a descendant of David. Guess what? The Gentiles don't care about that at all. There's no genealogy in Mark. There's no genealogy in John. So what we have are different perspectives of the life of Christ. They have different audiences, which brings the question that everybody always wants to ask. Does that mean that there's contradictions between the four? In fact, People continually complain about all the contradictions in the Bible. Let me give you a trick, okay? That's all it is. Somebody comes up to you and says, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? The first thing you ought to do is, that's interesting. Tell me one. The odds are, this is personal experience, the odds are they will not be able to tell you one. They just heard somewhere that there were contradictions. Okay, that's the first option. But let's say they do know one. You go, hmm, that's very interesting. Now, at this point, there's two possible answers. One, well, there's three possible answers. One, you know the answer. Two, you don't know the answer, but you want to make something up because it makes you feel good. Reject that number two answer and go... This is what you do. You ready for this? That's interesting. Give me your phone number. I will go find the answer, and I will call you and tell you the answer. Why? Because everyone, everyone, of the so-called contradictions between the Gospels or in the entire Bible have been addressed by people much smarter than you and me for thousands of years. There is an answer to every one of them. I remember distinctly, I remember exactly where I was standing. I was having conversations over years with this devout atheist that I worked with. Great guy. And he kept popping these questions as if he were the first person to ever think of this thing. And it just dawned on me, there's answers to all of these questions. Don't get defensive. Don't get, you know, bit out of shape if you don't know the answer off the top of your head. But smart people have looked at all of this and they know answers to all of these questions. Go find them. Today, this is actually easier than you can imagine. All you have to do is type on the contradiction and before you get finished typing it, all these answers will start popping up. Okay? So, are there contradictions between the books? And the answer is no. Okay? There's not. There are selections made about who chose what versus not choosing something else to put in there. That's true. There are different perspectives. You know, the demon-possessed man was running around the tombs. One says there was one guy. One says there were more than one. Well, the honest truth is there was probably one that was important, and he had some sidekicks. And guess what? Sidekicks don't get mentioned all the time. That's not a surprise. That's just normal. What is unique about Mark? First off, we talked about the fact that it was probably the first written. It was written to a Roman audience. Mark is probably in uh, Rome, when he is writing it, and it is very short and very concise. Just to give an example, here is the temptation of Jesus in Mark and in Matthew. You don't even have to read it, you just have to look at the fact that in Mark it is two verses and in Matthew it is 11. Now, this produces a problem for me. Okay? I'm going to have this temptation, when I get to talk about the temptation, to go to Matthew and say, let me give you the whole story. And that's a great temptation for me, because as you are aware, Matthew is my favorite book of the Bible. But if I was going to do that, why don't I just teach Matthew? And in fact, if you read, there's a commentary that's actually put out by Dallas Theological Seminary, and the first paragraph of the discussion of the book of Mark says that for a thousand years, Mark was pretty much ignored because it was just viewed as a watered-down Matthew. It is very concise. So I am going to try, but not always, to resist the temptation, just to jump over to Matthew and give you the the fill-in-the-blanks. We're going to go through Mark, and Mark wrote a concise book. It is a book full of action. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. It has less teaching in it than, say, Matthew or even John. Remember Matthew, three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, John has chapters of Jesus' prayer, chapters of his telling the disciples what's going to happen to him. Mark has one of these, I think. And there's another one later, okay? It is very action-oriented. I, Mark, is telling us, I want you to understand the life of Christ. Here it is, this, 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 and this. So what's he trying to do? He's trying to convince this Roman audience that Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God. What is the first sentence in the book of Mark? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to get to the end of it and this Roman centurion at the foot of the cross is going to say, surely this man is the Son of God. And guess what? Writing to a Roman audience, you have a centurion who ends up by saying, this guy is the Son of God. So, Who wrote the book of Mark? First off, there is no disciple named Mark. But there is a guy who we refer to as John Mark, who was a buddy of the apostles. He was probably a student of Peter. We are going to assume that Peter gave most of the information to Mark to write this book. He also went on mission trips with Paul. If you start working through all this, though, you begin to realize that at some point, Mark ticked off Paul, probably left early on one of the mission trips, had enough of it, went home, so they get to get ready for the next mission trip, and uh, Acts 15, 37, they're in the middle, now Barnabas wanted to take with them, John called Mark, and Paul said, no way, Jose, I'm not taking him again. So we see two verses later that there was an agreement and Barnabas took Mark and went this way and Paul went elsewhere. But it's important to remember Paul later in his life acknowledges look at 2 Timothy Luke along uh, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful for us in our ministry. At some point Mark and Paul were reconciled back together but look at that last verse first peter uh, 5 13. Uh, she who is at, at babylon who is likewise chosen sends you greetings and so does mark my son this is peter talking it probably means that mark was converted by peter now if you actually want to start an interesting discussion on that verse, we're not going to do this, but if you did, what is Babylon? Okay? Most of the early church people assumed that Babylon was the code word for Rome. Um, the Protestants came along and said, no, it's really Babylon, which you have to explain why they, what they were doing in Babylon, but anyway, we won't talk about that. There is one other passage, though, in the book of Mark. You don't have to read this. This is Jesus in, Jesus being arrested you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the bolded last two verses, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they, the Romans, seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Most people assume, church tradition assumes, that that is John Mark. Okay, not very complimentary of Mark. Okay, He's running away naked when Jesus is arrested. But that's an actually an interesting point. If, in fact, and I believe it's true, and we're going to operate on the assumption, Peter gave the information to Mark through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write the book of Mark, you would have thought that Peter would have done a better job of kind of, you know, building himself up. In actual fact, there is lots of good stuff about Peter that's not mentioned in the book of Mark. It's mentioned in Matthew, and it's mentioned in Luke, but it's not mentioned in... And there's some really bad stuff that Peter does, and guess what? It's mentioned in the book of Mark. What we see is that Peter... When telling Mark through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what to write down, recognizes his faults. He is not holding himself up as being the Son of God. He's here to talk about the Son of God. So we know who wrote it, John Mark. And I might add, there's no, there's very little argument about that. There are a large number of the early church fathers who just stated the book of Mark was written by John Mark, who was taught by Peter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have external evidence. We have some internal evidence, and we're not going to argue with that. Okay. That's the introduction. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We talked about this just a moment ago, but let's take it apart word by word. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. Today we refer to the gospel as being um, the story of Jesus and how he came to bring salvation to us as fallen human beings the fact that he was a sacrificial uh, a sacrifice for us so that we could enter the presence of a holy god that is what we refer to as a gospel technically it means good news this is the beginning of the gospel the gospel of who the gospel of Jesus Christ once again let's remind ourselves Jesus is his name Christ is His title. That is, his, He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all that Old Testament prophecy. I'm going to send you a Messiah, and that is Jesus, the Christ. That's the easy part. But what Mark is going to try to tell us throughout this book is, He is, He, Jesus, is the Son of God. And this is what separates Christians from, well, everyone else. I told you before, I had a college professor, wonderful lady, really enjoyed the class. She thought Jesus was a great guy. She really liked Jesus and Plato. Socrates, Socrates, Plato wrote Socrates. Because... They both taught the truth, and they were both killed for their teaching. But that's all they were, good teachers. The question is, do we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Because it makes all the difference in the world how we understand His life, how we understand His teaching. You know, if I stand up here and say, you should do something... You can sit there and go, well, he's not that bright. It may be okay, but I'm not sure. But you know, if some really bright person, I've mentioned in here numerous times, I've read the sayings of Confucius several times, and I enjoy them. But they're just nice, pithy sayings. Here's how you ought to live your life, written by a smart human being. Is that what Jesus is? Or Is Jesus the Son of God? Because if He is the Son of God, then He has the right, the authority, and the ability not just to make suggestions to you, but to give you authoritative answers to the questions of life and to command you to do certain things. Mark is going to try to show us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that's not necessarily a quote from Isaiah. It's actually from Malachi. But the discussion that's going to follow is from Isaiah. What is he saying? Remember, this isn't Matthew writing to a Jewish audience. What he's saying is if I start at, who was the first prophet? Isaiah. And I go to the last prophet? Malachi. It's all there. And isaiah is the top dog i mean he's the first one so all the prophets he's going to merge them all together and say see here's what the prophets said was going to happen this particular passage is actually talking about the guy that shows up in the next couple of verses john the baptist or john the baptizer Remember, because some people do get confused about this, this is not the Apostle John. This is not the John who wrote the book of John. This is the John that came before. His job was simply this, to prepare the way. Behold, I send a messenger before your face. This messenger is going to come, and he's going to get in your face, and he's going to tell you what you need to do. There are those who refer to John the Baptist, as the last Old Testament prophet. Remember, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, there are 400 years between these two events. And what has God been telling to His people? Huh. Nothing that's in our Bible. If you're a Catholic, you've got a couple more books thrown in there, but that's a whole different story. Then John shows up, hellfire and brimstone, repent, but he's there to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. In ancient times if you lived in some town, some village, some city, and you heard that the king was going to come, you would send out probably the entire population to clean up the path, to literally flatten the road, to smooth it out, to make it straight, so that when the king's chariot, carriage, horse, whatever he was on was coming it would be a smooth ride that's what you would do and that's what John has come to accomplish he is a messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight now there are two ways of looking at this the right way and kind of another way This is a particular message that John is fulfilling. John is the prophet who has come to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. He is preparing the people. He is telling them to turn, repent. More about that in just a moment. He is telling them to repent, to confess their sins, and to be baptized. It is interesting because we're going to see this word several times show up. The voice calling from the wilderness. Then it's going to talk about John living in the wilderness. Eating locusts. He's eating cicadas. He's eating all of the 17 years. Anyway. And he's in the wilderness. And then we're going to talk about him living in the wilderness and everybody coming. Throughout this book... We're going to have this idea that here are the religious leaders in their civilized places. And apart from all of that, separate from all of that, is the Word of God being proclaimed in the wilderness. Now, just to give you a hint, to a good Jew... There are Jews and Gentiles. That's the division of the world. To a good Greek of the time, there were Greeks and barbarians. So you're a good Jew, and the rest of the world are Gentiles, a.k.a. dogs. And Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, and he's telling the Gentile audience the truth is not in the centers of Jewish whatever. The truth is in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, the fact that you're a Gentile, a dog, in the eyes of a Jew, doesn't matter that much because the truth is out there. Hmm, more about that in times to come. Let me read the rest of this and we'll wrap it all up. Jesus appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John appeared out in the wilderness, preaching, you need to be baptized. Now, it's interesting. It says all of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Just As a side discussion, this usually comes up when we talk about that topic we're not going to talk about, which is predestination, which is the use of the word all. Um, It's usually used in one of two ways. The first is all without exception. We are all in need of a Savior. Every one of us, we are all without exception in need of a Savior. But another way that it's oftentimes used is without distinction, all without distinction. What well, if I say that all of Fort Worth is watching a football game, what I'm saying is people from every group, every class, everybody that wanted to, I'm not necessarily saying that all without exception are at the football game. And that's what we see here. I am not actually expecting that everyone in Jerusalem, left at Jerusalem to go hear John. But what it is telling us that separate from any group, any ethnic group, any religious group, all without distinction came out to hear John, which is kind of interesting. But think about this. You are a good Jew. Okay? A good one. And for 400 years... You've been waiting for the next prophet. And somebody says, he's out there. We know for a fact that even the Jewish leadership were going out to hear John because they were worried what he was going to teach. They were worried he was going to lead the people astray, or at least lead them away from them. So all without distinction we're coming out to hear his message and we will pick it up right there next week let's close in prayer dear heavenly father thank you for the gospel thank you for the presentation in mark i pray lord that you'd help us to understand it and grasp what you were trying to teach us but more important thank you for the gospel message itself that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen.